Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 17. I actually quit with only four or five verses to go. It's because I got long-winded by doing a sidetrack to the book of Isaiah 26, talking about the rapture. And so I'm just going to read verse 32 to 37, and then if you want to, I'm not going to go back because none of this is going to make sense unless we read verses 20 to 31. So let me just um, pick it up in verse 32, Luke 17, remember Lot's wife. Of course, the context here is uh, before judgment could come, the Lord had to remove Lot, and um, he warned them not to look back. Uh, Sodom was so evil and wicked, he didn't want anything in their heart except... um, as we read in the New Testament, that Lot was a righteous man and he was grieved. His soul was grieved every single day because of um, living in the city and actually being a judge at the gates of Sodom. We can identify with that today as we see the world spiraling down. And the admonishment here is remember Lot's wife. In other words, don't look back. Don't think there's something back there that you're missing out on. It's getting to the point that um, we want to be able to look for uh, the Lord's glorious appearing, his plan as we see, see it unfolding. And then Lot's wife's problem was her heart. And her heart was not yielded and uh, grieved like her husband's was uh, as She lived in Sodom. So in verse 33, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night there will be two men, one in one bed and the other taken, and the other one left. Two will be grinding together, one will be taken, the other left. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. All I'm going to make mention of here is that this is a worldwide event that takes place. When the rapture of the church takes it happens again we spent quite a bit of time on Sunday and last week making the comparison that the two things that we have in common with Noah and with Lot I think we threw in Enoch if I remember right is it says Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him so we actually have a picture of a man being raptured at 365 years old and um He, along with Noah and Lot, the thing they have in common is that they were all taken out before judgment happened. As a matter of fact, the angel says, we can't do anything until you're out of here. And so they pulled them out. And just like the rapture, when we talk about it today, Lot's daughter's husbands laughed at him. And said, you crazy old man. (laughs) Yeah, fire's gonna fall down from heaven, right? And um, as we talk about the glorious hope today, the times that we live in, and we talk about uh, this event that we find called the rapture of the church, it's foolishness. And that's what the Bible says. To those who are perishing, these things are foolish. But those of us who know God's word, know his plan, as we watch it unfold, uh, we have hope. That's why it says, therefore, comfort one another with these words world will not get better. These are the beginning of sorrows. So it's only going to get worse, but the glorious hope is that God has a plan and he will judge the earth in the same way that he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, the reason that he says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, he closes it with the words, therefore, Comfort one another with these words. God God has a plan. So don't freak out when we see the world falling apart. It's actually biblically falling together. And the danger for for the uh, church today is a lack. It says, my people perish because of the lack of the knowledge of the word of God. And that's what I see taking place. People are perishing. They don't have a clue. If they knew this book, and understand God's overall purpose and plan, then you would have hope. Um, so the event 
is a worldwide event. Some people will be sleeping, some people will be working. And they answered and said to him, where, Lord? And so he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagle will be gathered together. Now, I'm going to encourage you, if you want to get this in a full context, just get last week's message and pick it up at 20, and um, it'll all be in context. Chapter 18. Chapter 18 is a parable of the woman and the judge. And let's just read verse 1 for starters here. As we start 18, we're going to be looking at the parable of the unjust judge, the parable of the Pharisees and the publicans. Uh, Jesus blesses the little children. Jesus will confront the rich young ruler with five of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus heals the blind men on entering um, Jericho. So in verse 1 we read, Then he spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not to lose heart. Um, We quote this often at men's prayer. Um, In verse one, it opens with two alternatives to any man who is living in in difficult times or difficult circumstances. You and I have to do one of two things. You'll have to make up your mind what you're going to do. Men in difficult days will either faint or they will pray. Uh, Either they... Their days will be days of fear or days of faith. So we all have situations that at times can seem overwhelming. And um, it can be overwhelming to the point where a person would faint. But here um, we find the Lord saying it's, it's one or the other. Don't lose heart. Men are always to pray. You have one or two alternatives, praying or fainting. I thought Marge Schneider wrote the song, When Your Knees Are Knocking. Um, The chorus goes, kneel on them, kneel on them, trust in the Lord. And uh, I I thought it was her song, but I was reading, and somebody else quoted the same thing, so now I'm I'm perplexed. Um, Marge uh, was, uh, I'm taking it for granted, you know who she is. Uh, Probably the most beautiful voice on a woman I've ever heard. She was part of the Jesus movement, maybe only made a couple, couple albums. But that was one of her songs that she sang. When your knees are knocking, kneel on them, kneel on them. And I think I was reading a comparison of the people living in London when they were being bombed and they were shaken to the core. And then there was this, this, this verse, when your knees are knocking, kneel on them, kneel on them. And I thought, Marge, you stole that if you wrote that song. (laughs) All right, let's go through two through eight. We'll look at the, um, this, this guy is into himself. Um, He's a a typical uh, judge who doesn't know the Lord. He's self-centered and he's only into himself. It says there was a certain, there was uh, in a certain city a judge He did not fear God, nor he really didn't have any regard for men. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, avenge me of my adversary. Now we have to use our imagination here. We don't know what her problem is. Um, But she wants him to intercede on her behalf. She believes she has a just case. But he wouldn't do it for a while. But afterwards, he said within himself, though I don't fear God nor regard men, yet because this widow troubles me, I'm going to avenge her. Lest her continual coming, she weary me. Now I have to stop, and um, one interpretation of this is persistency. Be persistent, be persistent, be persistent. Well, when we get to the part in verse 6, it says here, the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said and we find when it comes to the parables let me just explain a little bit about uh, basically two kinds of parables you would think here that that, um, persistency in prayer is the main point actually it's not this is a parable by contrast not by comparison parables were stories given by our lord to illustrate truth 
The word parable comes from two Greek words, para, meaning beside, and balo is the verb meaning to throw. We get our word ball from it. Isn't that interesting? I think about teenage boys and balls. Any kind of ball. Give a boy a ball and he'll do something with it. He'll play baseball with it. He'll play basketball with it. Um, He'll play soccer with it. He'll play tennis with it. He'll play racquetball with it. Just give him a ball and he'll find something to do with it. How about an amen, guys? (laughs) And it's interesting that that's where this word comes from. A parable means something that is thrown beside something else to tell you something about it. For instance, a yardstick placed beside a table is a parable to the table. It tells you how high it is. A parable is a story our Lord told to illustrate divine truth. These are two ways he did this. One by comparison, but the other is by contrast. And this one here is by contrast. He's going to contrast a guy who's ungodly, could care less about people, to our heavenly father who is just the opposite. So what we have here is a parable of contrast rather than comparison. Our Lord is saying when you come to God in prayer, do you think that God is an unjust judge? When you come to him in prayer, do you think he's a cheap politician? Do you think God is doing things just for political reasons? If you think this, you're wrong. God is not an unjust judge. Let's finish reading this, and I'll comment one more time. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with him? I know he bears long with me. How about with you? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. And then this interesting. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? What an interesting verse. Okay, now, if this unjust judge would hear a poor widow because she kept continually coming to him, then why do you get discouraged going to God who is not an unjust judge, but who actually wants to hear and answer our prayers. Why are God's people today so discouraged in their prayer life? Don't you know? Uh, He is not an unjust judge. You don't have to hang onto his coattail and beg him and plead with him. God wants you to, God actually wants you to act in your behalf. If we had that attitude, it would change our prayer life to come into his presence knowing that he actually wants to hear us. This is where free will comes in. See, we're allowing God. He wants to do it, but he will never override your free will. That's why prayer is so important. You're actually saying, Lord, I give you permission. Will you do this? Well, he's wanting already to do it, but you're a free moral agent. And that's that's why I have such a problem with the... um, Reform Calvinism perspective of not having a free will. Free will is everything if you understand the concept of, let's just say, love. Um, when you married your wife, did you not exercise your own free will because you wanted to? Of course. Jim, why are you looking at your wife that way? <laughs> it's your fault for sitting that close to me. And so the whole idea is the Lord wants to, but prayer is actually saying, Lord, um, I know you want what's best for me. And that might not always um, be our way of thinking and what we think might be best for us. So here we have one of the things we want to learn on the parable that we just studied is that there's two types of parables. There are those by contrast and those by comparison. Here, the Lord is contrasting his good nature against a guy who's a real jerk. He doesn't care about God. He doesn't care about the woman. And in contrast, we have a loving father who wants us to come to him. And he wants to be strong on our behalf. Does not the scripture say you have not? 
because you ask not. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Sort of looks like the ball's in our court and all we have to do is put it up with one condition. Wise words to any prayer. Nevertheless, not my will be done, Lord, but your will be done. Father knows best. Good place for an amen. So pray your prayers, but let the Lord be the Lord. Just like the Lord did not want to go to the cross, but he said, nevertheless. If there's any other way that man can get saved and not go to hell, then that's what I choose. But nevertheless, not my will be done, Father, but your will be done. Well, there was no other way. There was only one way. And he yielded to that. And by the way, he prayed that prayer three times. So um, let's go on to um, the parable of the tax collector, verses 9 through 14. We talked about this on Sunday. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. Again, um, two, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself. Notice that, this is him talking to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this guy over here, this tax collector. And in other words, he was proud and he was arrogant and self-righteous. By the way, Lord, I fast twice, twice a week and I give tithes of all that I possess. That's, now we're introduced to the tax collector. And a tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Have you ever been in a place where you've done something stupid and, and you know you've done something stupid and you don't even want to look at yourself in the mirror because you got that was stupid. And uh, get it in that place. This, this, this man wouldn't raise up his head. He made his living by adding on to, um, Rome commanded him to collect the taxes. But what, where he made his living from was whatever else he could get by it. Now when we get to Zacchaeus tonight, hopefully, Lord willing, chapter 19, I'll really stress this point because it says Zacchaeus, living in Jericho, was very rich. And so here we have this tax collector He can't even lift up his eyes because he knows he's a wretch. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Turn with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Let me draw your attention. Let's pick it up in verse 15. This is one of David's psalms. It says, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifices, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Go back to our parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. One was arrogant and proud, and the tax collector was of a broken and a contrite spirit. And he was broken, and he was aware of his sin, in contrast to the Pharisee who is full of himself, arrogant, self-righteous. And um, the Lord says, which one of these two went down forgiven? He says this one, the one who had the broken and the contrite heart. This is how we're supposed to walk before people. Not with an air, an attitude of arrogance, but of one of um, continually, it's interesting to me, that of all people, the Apostle Paul referred to himself as the chief of sinners. 
but he said this at the end of his days, not in the beginning of his days. In other words, the longer he walked with the Lord, the more conscious he was of what was truly of the Lord and what wasn't. And if Paul would sin after all that he'd been through, he saw himself as being that much more held accountable. To whom much is given, what does it say? Much is required. To whom little is given, little is required. You think Paul had a lot given to him? Oh yeah. So can you imagine being the apostle Paul and then you blow it somehow and you get in the flesh somehow. And I bet you that's why he called himself the chiefest of sinners. He says, I know, I know more about this sin that should have never happened than anybody else. And so he judged himself that way because of uh, the experiences that the apostle had. All right? Uh, just three verses here on children. But we'll go to Matthew 18 along with this. Verse 15, uh, then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him and said, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter in. Notice here, even the disciple said, don't bring the little children to him. Flip over to Matthew chapter 18. And let's look at verses one through five. Matthew 18, verse one, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called the little child to him and set him in the midst of them. The humanity, we gotta remember the Lord was fully God, but at the same time, fully human. And here, um, you know, I see a father figure. No, I take that back. I see a grandfather figure here who loves to love on grandkids. So here is the Lord and he takes a child and he set him right in the middle. And he said, assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven with that childlike faith. Childlike faith, is if mom and dad says it, well that's, that's just the way it is. And um, it, the older you get, you filter things through, well maybe I will, maybe I won't, blah, blah, blah. And yet, with a child, they, they, uh, they look to mommy and daddy and grandma and grandpa, and the Lord is basically saying, that's how I want you to think of me. That when I say something and you have a question, I have the answers. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Now, let me give you the flip side on what's happening today with little children. Jesus says, anyone that would offend one of these little ones of mine, it would be better for him on judgment day that a millstone be hung around his neck and he be drowned in the deepest sea rather than stand in front of me on judgment day because they're young They're impressionable. And unfortunately today, um, just the laws are just passed in California, that you as a parent have no right to say that your child can't sit in on on, um, uh, transgender sex change classes beginning in kindergarten. Explaining to this little boy, well, maybe you're not a boy. What is that, what's, how is that affecting that child? This is a teacher. This is an authority figure that's, that's telling them this. And the Lord is thinking, anybody that causes one of these little ones to stumble and actually affects the way they think when it comes to, to these issues, boys are boys and girls are girls. Can we agree on that? <laughs> it's pretty obvious. But yet, to some it isn't. I mean, how dumb has our population gotten? And how, no, don't get me started. So we just better keep right on going. 
But the Lord says it best, whoever receives one of these little ones. They're so impressionable. They, at that age, respect authority. And now what's being taught in the public school systems, I know one guy that was a high school uh, counselor. He quit. Says, I will not do this anymore because they won't let me counsel. I got to follow the, the rules that have been, been established. And I commend him uh, for doing it. I'm not going to mention his name. But um, homeschooling seems to be the way to go uh, these days. And I pray uh, my heart goes out to any teachers that are in the public school system. And um, tough going for, for a lot of them. We need to pray for them is what we need to do. Okay, let's go back to, let's go back to Luke and pick up with the rich young ruler. Let's read it and we'll come back and I'll comment on it. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now remember the disciples asked the same question in John. Uh, Lord, what can we do? What work can we do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, believe in the Son of God. That's all. That was it, period. Nothing more, nothing less. So he's basically asking the same question. In other words, what work do I need to fulfill so that I can go to heaven? Uh, So Jesus cuts to the quick with this guy. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. You know the commandments. So now he's going to quote to him five of the ten commandments. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, and honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, as we look at the Ten Commandments, Jesus flashed on this young man the section of the Ten Commandments uh, that deals with man's relationship with man. Uh, The first section has to do with man's relationship to God. This young man could could have met the second section, but not the first. He needed a relationship with God, which he evidently lacked. Riches stood in the way of this man, and the law condemned this attractive young man. Riches were the stumbling block for him. For another man, it might be something else, but it's impossible for any man to get into the kingdom of heaven by riches or by any other human means. We left off in verse 21, where he said, well, I've kept all those commandments, the ones that related to him. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say that somehow he pulled it off, even though I don't believe he did. So Jesus, when he heard this, he said, okay, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They have too many opportunities. Um, I think it creates a false sense of authority and power with people who have money. Some people can handle money, some people can't. There's nothing wrong with money. It's the love of money that's the problem. Money is amoral. It could be used for good or it could be used for bad. Right here, the Lord is suggesting, you really want to be rich? You really want treasures in heaven? Good, just give all that stuff away, give it to the poor, and you come and follow me. Basically, he's going to point out to this man that he's not as good as he thinks he is. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? But he said, these things which are impossible with men are possible with God. All right, now we're getting back to works versus grace. If if you can get into heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments, this is what I have to say for you. Good luck. (laughs) Good luck. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All is all. There's not one righteous No, not none. This guy thought he was. 
So what the Lord is basically doing here is positioning him that he has to admit to himself that uh, he could not do what the Lord was asking him to do. Why? Because God, I mean manna or money was his God. And by works, it's impossible. There's no work that you can do to get you to heaven. Good place for an amen. It's either, we talked about this on Sunday and I can never stress it enough. Uh, I think we were talking about the church of Thyatira and all the things that they added to. He talks about all the good things that they did. But then they added all these other requirements. 22 I listed off. Adding two scriptures uh, in order for a person to go to heaven. And so it's, we went to that one scripture in Romans where if you're saved by grace, then it's grace. If you're saved by works, then it's works. But it's one or the other. Now if you want the works, know that you have to do it perfect. You'll have to have lived a perfect life, never had a, a sinful thought, never got angry, never lied, never stole any of the above. That's what you'd have to do. That's why Jesus said, don't think that I've come to destroy the law. The law is good. Uh, and it, uh, it's a mirror that we look in that shows us what we should be like, but we're not. So there's nothing wrong with the law, but there's only one person who ever fulfilled it. And that's why Jesus said, don't think that I've come to destroy it. I haven't. I've come to live a perfect life. I've come to fulfill the law. And so what does he do? He dies on Calvary's cross. 2 Corinthians 5. He who knew no sin became sin for us and then he gave us his righteousness. He took my sin, but then he's the only one who's righteous and he made me righteous. Now, what should be the natural response when you understand that? Offer the sacrifice of praise. What more can you do except Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, so much. Because I know in my heart of hearts there's no way I lived the perfect life. I know that you did. And so if you're changing this all around and I'm the beneficiary of your grace, then I'll take the grace hands down. Those self-righteous religious people that think that there's some measure of good work that's going to help them in some way, Here's the irony of this. The good works naturally come after you become born again. Uh, James talks about that. You know there's people that believe that James shouldn't be in the Bible because it says faith without works is dead. Um, Faith doesn't save me, but when a person is truly born again, what do they do? They start loving on their neighbor. They start doing good things when they weren't doing good things before. So it, it... when you do a good work as a born-again Christian, it's just a natural fruit of the Spirit. And let me clarify that. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then it goes on and say long-suffering, patience, endurance, kindness, gentleness, so on and so forth. But those are all attributes of God's love being in you. It doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit. It says singular, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And the attributes of love are all these other characteristics that we read about in 1 Corinthians 13. It's a byproduct of um, the love of God coming forth through you. We dare not touch any of that glory and just thank the Lord for his grace. And it should manifest itself by, um, that's what Jesus was known for. He says he went around doing good. Never went around, no words that said that he ever went around doing bad. He only went around doing good. Uh, Lord, let it be so for us too. Okay. Um, let's pick it up in verse 28. The, the guys are listening now to this after um, this guy couldn't give up his riches. Peter, Peter said, see, we've left all and followed you. So he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more 
in this present time and in the age to come, everlasting life. You can't outgive God. And so what uh, he's telling Peter, um, these guys, I mean, the biggest business day of Peter's life, um, (laughs) two boatloads of of fish, the biggest haul he ever had, and um, when they brought him to shore, the Lord says, now follow me. And he left all that stuff behind, and he followed the Lord. Peter and James, John and Andrew, they were all fishing buddies together, all in Capernaum. And that day was their biggest catch ever they ever had. The Lord said, ah, forget about it, leave it behind. And they did. And now the Lord is telling them, because of that, you can't outgive me. So you're gonna receive in this present time many more things. Some people, before they're saved, maybe they have a handful of friends that you can really call friends, tell them anything, talk to them, just a handful. But what happens when you're born again? I can go anywhere in this world, and I've been in most of it, and if I run into a truly born-again believer, he's my brother. We connect just like that. He knows what's inside of me, and I know what's inside of him, and we're one. So I could actually say, I have a great big family. (laughs) And you can say you have a great big family, many more. And um, the challenge is, for a lot of people, is peer pressure. You know, a lot of people don't give everything to the Lord because they're afraid of uh, what their children might think, whether it's, say, parents or brother or wife or children. Um, they're putting the Lord above that step of family members. Throw in friends, because you you will lose friends if you truly come to the Lord. But the Lord says, don't worry about it, because you're going to get a whole lot more if you do it. Now remember, this is in the context of the rich man who couldn't give up his God, which was money. He couldn't do it, and he left sad. After Peter heard that, Peter's probably going, all right. All right, a lot more, brother, a lot more now and when we get to heaven. Let's finish off um, where the Lord now tries to bring a reality check to the disciples. Peter's probably feeling pretty good about what's coming, but I think the Lord is picking up on the fact that Peter's feeling pretty good about all that he's going to get in this life and the life to come. So I think the Lord purposely throws this in at this time. It's a reality check of why he really came. Verse 31 to 34. Then he took the 12 aside and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, he will be mocked, and insulted, he'll be spit upon, they will scourge him, they will put him to death, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. These sayings was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. What I find interesting is how he switches gears so quick. From Peter thinking, all right, we're gonna get all this stuff and all this stuff. Well, guys, there's some things you're going to have to go through, first of all. In John's gospel, when we get to John 20, he actually pulls Peter aside, tells him how he's going to die. He doesn't tell him here. He only tells him how he's going to die. And they weren't expecting this. Remember, these were the guys that were always arguing. They're sure he's the Messiah. We're on our way to Jerusalem. And now they're, they're lining up to enter into the kingdom, as far as I can tell. Mary was the only one who got it. She listened. A lot of people don't get it today because they don't listen to the word of God. Mary um, was the one that anointed the Lord, that sat at Jesus' feet and anointed, um, anointed him Remember all the disciples, especially Judas, got all bent out of shape 
So what are you doing giving us costly perfume? This, this could have been sold and given to the poor. And later we read, not that, they, not that Judas cared for the poor, he just was one in charge of the money, and he, he was simply a thief. And, um, um, but the one who got it was Mary. And she was the one who poured this costly uh, perfume on him. And what did the Lord say? No, 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 leave her alone. Don't do that. She's doing this for my burial. Well, that went over everybody else's head. But you see, whenever you read about Mary, where is she? Always sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening. It's one thing to be a hearer of the word, amen? It's another thing to be a doer. The guys were hearing the Lord, but right over their head. Mary got it. When, the, when she heard the Lord say, no, I'm going I'm to go to Jerusalem, I'm gonna, everything that he he says this at least three times. And Mary must have heard it one of the times because she, the Bible says he, he, she did this for his burial. Leave her alone. And she got it. But my point is she got it because she listened and um, was taking it all in. Um, I don't want to come down too hard on Martha because we'll be talking about some of the, the gifts of the Spirit on of the Holy Spirit on Sunday. And one of them is the gift of helps and being a servant and all the different parts that are necessary in the body of Christ. We need Marthas, okay? We need Marys. And uh, you have two sisters in contrast here. Um, But the Lord did say to her, Martha, Martha, you're concerned about many things, but your sister Mary has chosen that better part because she was sitting down and listening to a Bible study. I commend you guys. You're uh, out on a Wednesday night and you're sitting down taking an hour and you're taking in God's word and uh, hopefully it's penetrating and as a result of hearing, our faith is being increased. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by God's word. And if you continue in that, then you will grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. That's what he wants. Our problem is we live in a world that's got so many distractions. Another good place for an honest amen. Way too many distractions that can pull us away from that which should be first um, in our life. So they didn't understand. Let's finish the the, the chapter um, with um, the Lord healing Bartimaeus. Then it happened that as he was coming near Jericho, what I just read is going to be important. He isn't in Jericho yet. I'll make a point of that in just a bit. That a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he, he asked what it meant. And so they told him it was Jesus of Nazareth who was passing by. And he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, that I might receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. And immediately he received his sight, and followed him, glorifying God, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Now, I pointed out when we first read this, he's on his way into Jericho. As um, we think of blind Bartimaeus here, uh, first of all, Bartimaeus addresses Jesus as the son of David. He acknowledges his kingship, uh, he knew Jesus was able to heal him, and so it was impossible for him uh, not to be quiet. He knew what he wanted, and he had great faith in Jesus, and Jesus is dealing with this blind man, is, is uh, uh, a tender moment, touching moment, and uh, it was immediate. Other times the Lord would heal people, 
And he said, um, he'd touch his eyes or spit and make mud and put it in his eyes. And says, how's, how's it going? How are you saying? Well, he says, I see men like trees walking. And it was, it was an ongoing type thing. By the way, he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Um, we're working out the details on going to Israel. When I was there last time, they had discovered a, con- a tunnel and it says, keep out. And um, so it, it ends at the Pool of Siloam. And they didn't know where this tunnel actually went. And so I know, I know it said, keep out, but I was the only one there, and I have to confess my sin openly. <laughs> that I went in as far as I could, because I wanted to know what was in this, what was in this place. Well, what I found out, what they've just completed is it runs, it's completely finished now. It's, um, it's an arch, maybe uh, seven feet tall, uh, maybe seven feet, no, maybe eight feet wide. And it ends at the Pool of Siloam, but it goes all the way up to the Temple Mount. So when the Lord told this man to go wash in the Pool of Siloam, he would have walked this very thing. It's now open. Every time... I get to go back to Israel. I'm always hoping to see something new, something that I've never seen before. And most of the archaeological work and digging they're doing is in what we call the city of David, which was a very small section of what we would call Jerusalem today. And it ended at the Temple Mount during David's time. It was a threshing floor, remember, when he purchased it? And so what we have here is... As we look at this, um, we should mention the critics of the Bible find this is a contradiction because Matthew speaks of two blind men, while Mark and Luke mention only one. However, if you will read this passage carefully, you will see that Matthew and Mark obviously refer to a work of healing as Jesus departed from Jericho. What we read in verse one here is he's on his way into Jericho. Um, It is specifically mentioned in Mark, uh, the healing described by Luke uh, occurred before Jesus entered Jericho. This man is also uh, familiar, uh, this man also used a familiar form of address as the son of David. He believed that Jesus was. So, let's go on to chapter 19. Uh, One of my favorite stories in the Bible, Zacchaeus. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, okay? And now behold, there was a certain man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, okay? Now you have different levels in, a, in an administrative role. In your work, you have different structures of authority. Well, Zacchaeus, he's a chief tax collector, and he was rich, and he sought to see Jesus, but he could not because of the crowd, for he was of short statute. So he ran ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him and he said to him, Hey, Zacchaeus, come on down, for I'm going to stay at your house tonight. So he made haste and came down. And he received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all murmured, saying, he's gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Not just an ordinary one, but a chief tax collector. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, look, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I will restore fourfold. If you're taking notes, or in the margin of your Bible, you might read Exodus 22, verse one. Matter of fact, I got it marked, so I'll just turn there and read it to you. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So he's basically saying, if I rip somebody off, I'm gonna give him four times, I will restore four, fourfold. That actually comes from the law because this tax collector is Jewish. Uh, 
And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. So he's a Jewish. For the son of man is coming to seek and to save that which was lost. Now this is gonna come into play here. He's seeking Zacchaeus out. Now point that out, that he actually had to go out of his way to get to, to Jericho because where he was before this was in Samaria. And you gotta go east to get to Jericho and then go west to get back up to Jerusalem. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, as we look at this here, um, Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus had been over in uh, Samaria country. When he left Samaria, he headed towards Jerusalem He seems to be off the beaten path. Now you'd have to know the landscape a little bit. Um, Ramallah today is in what we would call Samaria. And the Lord would actually have to go down to Jericho, but from where he was at, it would have been easier to go west to get to Jerusalem, which is where he is headed at this time. Um, but he goes to Jericho because there's a sinner there. In fact, there are two or three sinners in Jericho. The Lord is going after them in the very same way that he said, we must go to Samaria. There was a divine appointment that he had with a woman at the well that eventually got saved. Now, a Jew, when he would be going to Jerusalem, if you're from the Galilee, you would take what we call the Jordan Valley. And basically, you're following the Jordan River. And you wouldn't go through Samaria. Why? Because Jews and Samaritans have no dealings with each other. They purposely would go around. So the Lord is saying he's got an appointment in Jericho. Let me describe Jericho a little bit. Jericho was a city that God had given into the hand of Joshua. When they first took the promised land, remember they marched around it seven times when the walls fell? And then a curse was placed on whoever would rebuild it. The man who rebuilt it in the days of Ahab reaped the curse in all of its fullness. In Jesus' day, this is like a resort area. The Las Vegas of that time. Many people spent their vacations there. Here the publicans lived. The publicans were like the modern mafia. They were tax gatherers and they were despised. Now, when we're walking, going through that area, it's nothing but wilderness, barren, barren desert. That is until you get to Jericho. Then you have palm trees and they have water sources that come through there. And um, it is supposedly the oldest city in the world. But... Um, just like En Gedi, uh, it talks about the wild goats. David wrote about them 3,000 years ago. They're still there to this day. Jericho today is still lush and beautiful and still well watered. And so it was like the place um, to be. And so the Lord had this appointment with this guy named um, Zacchaeus. Well, I see I'm not gonna get much farther, so I might as well end with a story. Is that all right with you? (laughs) All right, Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon had a Bible school. And in his Bible school and with his students, he insisted that at any moment he could point at one of his students and he would, whatever text he was teaching from, he would require that student to be able to give a three-point message from whatever verse Spurgeon would come up with. Now, Charles Spurgeon in his pulpit, uh, where it was in those days, he actually had to walk round and round and round, way up in the air. And so he's looking down on his students. Spurgeon was a big man anyway. And so the day came when he was lecturing and he got to the point where he's teaching through Zacchaeus. So he looks down and he points at that guy right there. 
Come on, I'm up here. And he says, I want a three-point message on Zacchaeus. So the guy is scared to death. I mean, here's Spurgeon, great big Spurgeon. And he gets out, and he's just a little, he's just a little short guy anyway. And so he's, he's nervous as all get out. And he's making his way up these stairs. And he's standing next to big Spurgeon, and he's not a big guy. And Spurgeon says, I want a three-point message on Zacchaeus. He goes, okay, okay, uh, let's see. Um, well, point one, Zacchaeus was in a tree. I am in a tree. Point two, Zacchaeus was a wee short man. I am a wee short man. Point three, the Lord said, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming down. (laughs) True story. So I hope you remember more than that tonight. But that's a a true story from Spurgeon in his uh, story about Zacchaeus. Let's stand and we'll pray. It's right at eight. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. And um, Lord, help us as we sit at your feet and take in your word. Um, We just hold the rest of this weekend up to you. Lord, I pray for these guys that are working outside the next couple days. I hear the schools are closed tomorrow and Friday. And um, I just pray that your grace would be upon them. So we thank you for your word again this evening. And as we go, Lord, just um, bless our fellowship. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Lush and beautiful and still well watered. And so it was like the place um, to be. And so the Lord had this appointment with this guy named um, Zacchaeus. Well, I see I'm not gonna get much farther, so I might as well end with a story. Is that all right with you? (laughs) All right, Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon had a Bible school. And in his Bible school and with his students, he insisted that at any moment, he could point at one of his students and he would, whatever text he was teaching from, he would require that student to be able to give a three-point message from whatever verse Spurgeon would come up with. Now, Charles Spurgeon in his pulpit, uh, where it was in those days, he actually had to walk round and round and round, way up in the air. And so he's looking down on his students. Spurgeon was a big man anyway. And so the day came when he was lecturing and he got to the point where he's teaching through Zacchaeus. So he looks down and he points at that guy right there. Come on, I'm up here. And he says, I want a three-point message on Zacchaeus. So the guy is scared to death. I mean, here's Spurgeon, great big Spurgeon. And he gets out, and he's just a little, he's just a little short guy anyway. And so he's, he's nervous as all get out. And he's making his way up these stairs. And he's standing next to big Spurgeon, and he's not a big guy. And Spurgeon says, I want a three-point message on Zacchaeus. He goes, okay, okay, uh, let's see. Um, well, point one, Zacchaeus was in a tree. I am in a tree. Point two, Zacchaeus was a wee short man. I am a wee short man. Point three, the Lord said, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming down. <laughs> True story. So I hope you remember more than that tonight. But that's a a true story from Spurgeon in his uh, story about Zacchaeus. Let's stand and we'll pray. It's right at eight. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. And um, 
Lord, help us as we sit at your feet and take in your word. Um, We just hold the rest of this weekend up to you. Lord, I pray for these guys that are working outside the next couple days. I hear the schools are closed tomorrow and Friday. And um, I just pray that your grace would be upon them. So we thank you for your word again this evening. And as we go, Lord, just um, bless our fellowship. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.